Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Matan Grafell. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me back. Glad to have you back. And I have a couple things. I, I want to see how things went with you on your commitment. Yeah. And I'm also very interested in hearing your thoughts on if, if I can call you a an addiction specialist or expert, or at least someone with a lot more experience than I have. Sure. I'd love your thoughts on how this fits with you know, this model of a lot of people, their relationship with things that pollute is looks to me like addiction. Mm-hmm. So I propose we start with your experience, if that's okay with you. Yeah, totally. I mean, we talked about it a little bit before this, but obviously things came up in terms of I led a I led a school trip to Thailand and so, you know, was not able to get fully offline on a lot of those days. But I did set the intention and I did get to do a digital detox. I think I did a full digital detox on one Saturday and I did like a a mostly like eighty or ninety percent digital detox on another day, just setting the intention of putting the phone away and just being in person. I want to hear about that, but I, I want to take a step back yep. to because I'm not asking people in the Spodic method to do what I want them to do. Really? I'm trying to lead them to share something that matters to them, relevant to the environment, and then to act on their values. So could we go step backward to where what you, when I asked you what the environment meant to you, do you remember what, what you talked about? I think I talked about peace, calm, connection to yourself, creativity, like energy, like actually being being in your body. Do you remember where you were? Like if, if I asked you to paint a picture of nature, what was around you? I believe it was like a, a, a forest. I, I think I remember talking about in school, in elementary school, like going on these school trips to, to nature reserve, going going on, on trails, like exploring exploring trees and paths. And yeah, so that, that's pretty vivid for me still. Yeah, I remember also you have a cabin. If that's, do you remember that right? Yeah, I have a place upstate. It's like a it's like a converted barn. And all right, so the, then the emotions that you felt, you you said, can you repeat them again? Like calm, grounded, connected, peaceful, creative, like in my body, less in my head. Okay, so what what I'm hoping for is that the I'm not I don't, I try not to ask people to do something that will save the world, but to mm-hmm. do something that will manifest the feelings that they get in nature without having to go all the way to their cabins or go to the past. And because I think it's more accessible than people think. Yeah. And if they access it, I think they're less willing to let it, I don't know, get paved over. Yeah. So when you, the commitment was to do, I think you said a couple of Saturday detoxes. Yeah. I want to do like a Saturday digital detox basically. So how did they go and did you do them with the intent of experiencing it and getting those emotions that that those results yeah so so they went it went so so but i'm there were clear benefits and i'm gonna stick with that and set the intentions and the speaking from addiction perspective like interested in talking about and happy to talk about what what's challenging about it you know and the breaking habits was a common thing you know you have to deal with an addiction I did. I managed to do one full day digital detox and one day that was like a a, a partial, like maybe seventy or eighty percent there. The other days, I wasn't able to stick with it in my mind because of like logistical stuff. Like 
you know, led this this student trip and having to coordinate meeting companies and, you know, sort of all this stuff that I, from a work perspective, at least forced, felt like it forced me to be online. There was actually also um, something that I've been listening to the the Rick Rubin a lot, and he inspired me because uh, he's he talks a lot, a lot about creativity and his creative routines and how he wakes up in the morning, he goes out to see sun, he walks on the beach, he, you know, he he sort of does all these things in his body for at least the first few hours before he gets started doing work and wanting to connect with my creativity. That actually, you know, every every morning I woke up and I had that spark of like I I want to go outside, you know, I want to I want to be in nature. And, not be on my phone or not be on the computer because of that creative side, not just like the the peace and calm and clarity, the piece that I think we talked about last time. So I think it was good. And it, it was also, you know, more challenging than I expected, although I expected to be challenging. Just the piece of like, you know, putting away your phone, putting away your computer and then having to fill the space. It was easier when I had something to do and like not have to think about it. So, you know, going on a walk, but you can only go on a walk for so long. So then boredom kicks in and things like that. And, and you have to figure out ways to sort of fill in space. It's kind of, it's easy to go with the default behavior because you don't have to think about it. But as soon as you change the default behavior, you have to replace it with something. And that, that takes active work and active thinking. And yeah, that can be kind of mentally exhausting. What's the relationship between active work and active thinking and creativity? And boredom and creativity. Uh, it's a strong relationship. You know, I think for most people, but but at least for myself, I'll speak to my, for myself. I remember the periods in my life in which I've been the most creative were the periods in which I was sort of forced to be bored. In high school, I would get really bored in class and start writing. And I wrote like 45 pages of a book that you know, I never ended up finishing. But it was the only time where I was... The like the creative expression was my body's kind of default outlet when faced with boredom, and I'll go I'll go maybe even a little bit further to say a lot of uncomfortable feelings. I play guitar, and if I let myself sit with sadness or loneliness or or fear or pain for long enough, often it comes out in the form of playing music and writing songs. But we have it's so easy to distract ourselves from uncomfortable feelings these days, i.e., with you know phones or computers or devices, movies, Netflix, podcasts, articles, whatever it is that, you know, I almost never have to let myself feel that way. And as a result, I almost never forced to feel bored or uncomfortable feelings and also get creative. So it's one of those, you know, it's very related to the addiction cycle because when you have something that you know gives you comfort immediately and you're and you don't like feeling uncomfortable, it's easy to go to that, whether it's uh, drugs or, you know, another distraction. You're making me think of my NYU students. Like five, 10 years ago, when I asked them, where do you keep your phone when you fall asleep? And what do you do? And then for those who keep it by the bed, what do you do? Do you go for it first thing in the morning? And they would sheepishly say, you know, I, I've tried not to, but I still do. Yeah. And now when I ask them, they just say, of course, it's the last thing I do before I go to sleep and first thing I do when I wake up. Yeah. And- I don't know if they feel creative and if they feel more creative than someone walking on the beach might feel, but I feel like, well, I want to explore your experience with com- comparing this experience of breaking habits, uh, facing boredom with what happens when someone 
kicks an addiction because when I talk to people who are addicted, they seem to do anything. They will do anything but face that addiction. Yeah. Like they, they just will. Everything's explained away. And I'm, I'm like at a loss to, to have them face what's going on. Which is why, I mean, it's part of what makes addiction and treating addiction so challenging is that it, it can be so obvious to everyone around a person. And, it, and in fact, it can affect everyone around a person very, you know, very deeply. It can be really painful. It can lead to, you know, promises being broken, relationships being destroyed, you know, it, just sometimes it's people stealing, you know, committing violence. You know, that's not that's not necessarily the norm, but it can certainly affect other people. But as you said, someone could be pretty oblivious to that, or at least like in denial about it. Maybe, maybe sort of deep down, there's a part of them that's aware of it, but they kind of can't accept it. But you can't really force someone to change from the outside. You know, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of resources out there. And, you know, you mentioned um, earlier before we were chatting about AA, there's a whole uh, kind of group built in AA for the friends and family of people with alcohol, alcoholism, you know, Al-Anon and, and other sort of related groups because it can have such an effect on those people and lead to things like dependency and, you know, other problems. But uh, you, you almost it's very hard to get someone to change unless they already want to change. And often that requires them kind of having to hit rock bottom. So there's this concept in AA called like rock bottom and what is it? And when people get together, they, they share in groups. Often it can be really cathartic and a good starting place for them to talk about what their rock bottom was. And that, you know, I've heard stories of people sort of, they were using drugs and they, and they were driving their kids and they got into a car accident and they realized that uh, they were really putting their kids at risk. Right. And that's the moment they had to change. Or it might be someone goes to jail and they're kind of forced to change. You have interventions, and that's kind of an attempt at trying to get someone to feel the impact that that their addiction is having on other people um, and try and get them to change. But at the end of the day, if somebody doesn't see it, someone doesn't want to change, you can't, no one can force them to. And it could take a while to get to that point. Is it worth my time to talk? Oh, so there's this guy I was talking to recently. He wants to become more sustainable a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a big deal for him. He went through AA, I think he said like 20 years ago. Yeah. And before he went to AA, he was drinking a lot, having a great time. He was partying, and but he was, you know, waking up, not knowing where he was and stuff like that. And he said that there was a, a coworker who said to him, I used to drink and, and, and party like you. And then I stopped. And my life is much better. I have more fun. I have more, you know, it's better. All the things that I thought I was going to get from, that I thought I was getting from drinking and drugs, I, I'm, I'm getting better otherwise. And the guy I'm talking to said that when that guy said that, he's like, that's, that's backward. How can you have more fun with less alcohol? And mm -hmm. he didn't, it didn't make any sense to him. Now, decades later, he sees that, you know, he doesn't want to go back to alcohol. So I say to him, all right, you're, polluting a lot. And you look at me and you say, I don't want to give up all the things that you've given up. But I'm saying that I'm like that guy. I'm getting more of what I thought I was getting from polluting without the polluting. And as impossible as it seemed then, that's... But And yet it was the case. That's the situation here. To me, this is like SAT analogies. Mm -hmm. One is to two is two is to four. But 
we just went around and around in circles and he just, it like, it never registered with him. Yeah. Am I just barking up the wrong tree? Is that, is that pointless? No, it's a good question. Obviously people can change. You know, I'm not, I'm not a believer that people are fixed. Um, and I'm a, I'm a big gross mindset person, but I do think that people change in somewhat unpredictable ways. It's hard to get someone to change in a directed way intentionally and especially within a short amount of time often. And especially if they're not already kind of, you know, ready for change or, or wanting it. But people do change their minds and opinions all the time. So this is one that I'm kind of often on the fence about is how much is it worth sort of proactively trying to push people versus just being, just building the relationship and being available to start to notice when the conditions are there for them to be ready to change and then sort of guide that energy when it, when it's, when it presents itself. But you know, th- there's a lot we still don't understand about psychology. There's a whole field. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of motivational interviewing, but there's a whole field of psychology around specifically, basically, how do you enhance people's motivation to change? You know, sometimes people sort of you'll ask them, "Do you want to do this?" and they'll say, "Like, yeah, like, you know, I, I kind of do, but you know, life gets in the way, or it's not easy, or whatever." And and there's a at least one field of psychology that I'm aware of that's all about. You know, what kind of questions can you ask and how can you tap into the reasons and values and a, a lot of the stuff that it sounds like, you know, you're working on. I don't know if it's grounded in motivational interviewing or any other style or something you've developed kind of yourself. I'm sure there's all sorts of things about behavior change that we still don't understand and, and these fields are still pretty, pretty nascent. But certainly, like logical arguments are not going to be convincing to a lot of people, which is frustrating because as a logical person myself, it's pretty easy to see from the outside when someone's being irrational or inconsistent or hypocritical or to your point in the in the case of this guy from AA, like seeing the seeing the situation in one area but not in another area of his life. For someone who's really logical, like they might they might be able to receive that. You know, like maybe not all scientists are logical necessarily, but but someone with like a scientific disposition, you might be able to lay out the case and you, you might get them to the point where they say, you know, I it's hard to accept, but I realize you're right. And so I'm going to try to make the change. But most people are emotional about these things. And so unfortunately, emotions often lead people to kind of dig in when they're feeling threatened or attacked or being pushed to change in a way that they don't want to change. And so, you know, when you when you try to when you try to logically argue with someone who's emotionally grounded, eventually you get to this point, which and I think Jonathan Haidt writes about this a lot too, where some you might you might diffuse all of the logical objections someone might have, and then at the end of the day, they are often just like, you know, I don't know why, but I still feel strongly about this thing. It just feels wrong to me. And so that, yeah, that can be a waste of time. <laughs> well, at this point of that conversation, I was not, I, I would never try to argue someone into change. That to me, totally. people know me, my CCCSC acronym of convince, cajole, coerce, seek compliance. To me, it's just bludgeoning and it just provokes debate and yep. reinforces where they are. Yeah, I was interested in seeing if he could just acknowledge the situation mm-hmm. that I think he sees in others. But that was just acknowledgement was what I was looking for. Like the, this situation could be like the situation before, but I guess he would see what that would lead. Yeah, that might be, right? It might be it might be denial or someone might see the uncomfortable consequences of that and just, you know, not, not want to go that path. 
there are other people who want to do the Spodek method with them, especially if they do the workshop with me. And that in the workshop, it's a group activity and it's it's been eight or nine weeks where a group meets for two hours on online on video. And then people spontaneously start changing. And I think that they would say that they were addicted. They didn't hit rock bottom. They just like I got an email from one and she was recommending the workshop to some friends of hers and she was saying how she just didn't even realize lots of things. And then when she realized, for example, how much more pollution flying caused than she thought, she actually said she cried. And then she's she's not going down to zero yet, but I think she's going to go down to one flight per year, which was down from a lot more. Mm-hmm. But there was no, I don't think she hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And and that, that's one of many things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it has to be rock bottom. There has to be some motivation. So like my my model that I often use is like there's some there's some sort of activation energy required to get someone to try to change their behavior in any way. And that activation energy needs to sort of overcome some resistance. And that resistance might be higher or lower. Obviously with, with drug addiction, which, you know, depending how long it goes on and for each person can involve really serious both mental but also physical, you know, dependencies and behaviors and you know, these build up in resistances. And so you know, there maybe the rock bottom has to be a lot lower for someone to finally get to the point where they say, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really change the stuff." For other people, it doesn't have to be that much. It can just be, it can be information. It can even be, in your example, a friend saying, "Hey, you really should check this out," and then their friend being like, "Okay, I trust that person. They're maybe they're seeing something I'm not seeing, but I'm gonna explore this, or I just have the time to explore it." But something clearly, you know, motivated or, or catalyzed that person to reach out. And, you know, by the time someone ends up in a workshop with you, there's already, you know, there's some resistance that they've overcome. I'm, I'm sure you'd recognize like for some, for people who are not in that workshop to convince them to come into it, if they're not, you know, already interested in that, it's going to be a lot harder. But if you have people who are already kind of like volunteering, at least to, you know, dedicate some of their time to get them to then change their behavior, it's probably going to be easier. If I say to this guy, look, I want to help you you say you want me to help you, but I don't see what to, what I'm able to do. I'm here when you're ready, but I don't want to waste my time. When you hit rock bottom or whatever it is you need to do to be serious, I'm ready for you. But in the meantime, vaya con Dios. Is that mean or is that appropriate? Or does it depend on the person? It's going to be hard because I think if someone's really resistant, you have to, you kind of need to be around, but not pushing them or not you understand them enough to figure out how to kind of influence them maybe, but without them feeling like you're pushing them. There's, I mean, this is maybe a crude metaphor, but like dog training comes to mind. I think, I think a lot of people think of dog training as like negative reinforcement. It's actually not quite negative reinforcements. It's often a misused term, but you know, the idea of, Oh, the dog does something bad. You, you punish them. They do something good. You reward them, right? If they pee in the wrong spot, you have to, you know, put their face in it, that sort of thing. And uh, one thing we're realizing about dog training is actually the negative reinforcement doesn't doesn't work very well at all, and and often it it, it actually creates like a lot of trauma. I mean, I think we can recognize that in humans as well. But the positive reinforcement actually works really, really well. So almost all you know, like dog training these days is positive reinforcement. Uh, you know, you give something good when they're give a dog something they want, like a reward when they do something good, and that's where the clicker method comes from the problem with that approach though is you you sometimes have to wait a long time 
for you know the dog to do the thing that you want to positively reinforce right so the timeline is kind of outside of your control to some extent but you also have to be there so that you know you can see it and reinforce it and guide it and build a relationship so that they're willing to sort of let you in changing family is another sort of example here which is like a lot of times people's parents or family members are quite resistant to change and you know unfortunately we we wish that they would change but i often say like unless you're really willing to take the time that it might take to to really change someone that might mean like moving back in with your parents and being around all the time and really starting to un- trying to understand them psychologically and you know work on rebuilding that relationship so that when they're ready they really trust you i don't think a lot of people are really willing to take that time and energy. I think to consistently change other people, at least individual people, it can really take a long time and energy. So it's unfortunately it's like easier to find the people who are already at the point where they're ready to change than to try to change any one individual. It, what you're talking about is all one on one stuff. Sure. And yeah. if billions of people are addicted to polluting, I that'll take me a billion years to Yeah, if you're doing one on one. Influence them. Yeah. I mean, there, there's community and there's availability. There's the story of all the Vietnam soldiers who, when they came back, they didn't, they stopped using heroin, at least in, in the amounts that they had before. Yeah. So I think of my strategies it has a couple stages. One of them is to work with people who are, who want to change and to give them the Spodic method seems to work pretty well. And but in the long run, I think community is going to be much more effective. Yeah, People may push back a, a bit on this or a lot on this, but I don't see any role models of people promoting sustainability who themselves are trying to live sustainably. I mean, people cite Greta. And I'm like, okay, one in eight billion. Yeah. And maybe someone knows some uncle who's living off in the woods, but that they're not trying to lead anyone. And most of them off grid, they may be, but they're usually using a lot of kerosene. Yeah, I think you're right. So- to create role models, to create community, to create support groups. Because when people, after they do the workshop, they continue to meet at the same time, even though the workshop is over. And not all of them, but at least half, they keep meeting every week. And I pop in and I, I love the group. And they're looking at the next things that they can do. And they're trying to figure out how they can figure out, you know, how can I, I stop doing X that pollutes and I found joy. I stopped doing Y that pollutes and I found joy. And they trade off like what more they can find. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And and so we're kind of, I guess we're transitioning from talking about like one-on-one change to, to like sort of social movements at the larger scale, which is an area I'm, I'm both fascinated by and also know so little about, like it is, it's just hard to create, you know, social change, but also super essential. And but I think I think a lot of the elements you're talking about are right. I you know you could think about it as a bit of a marketing funnel, right? Like products often, you know, when when you're a startup and you're starting to do marketing, you're doing direct response advertising. You're doing like paid ads on Facebook or Google or places like that, where where the goal is basically find people who already know that they want more or less your product or or a product like yours. Like there's a there's this thing called a decision sort of decision cycle where it's you know, someone first has to be aware that they have symptoms or a problem. They then have to sort of diagnose that to like the root cause. So imagine 
you know, imagine someone wakes up and, and they develop, they have like cold symptoms, right? They have runny nose, sort of sore throat. They might open up Google and say, runny nose, sore throat, like what's going on? And Google tells them, oh, you have a cold, right? And they're like, okay, cool. I've diagnosed this. So there's a stage there where it's, okay, symptoms of a problem, diagnosed to a problem. Now they're aware of the problem. And the next thing is they are like, well, how do you treat the cold? And they Google that. And it says, oh, well, there's a number of solutions. You can you know, you can take a medication, you can go a holistic route, you can drink a lot of water, you can get a lot of rest, et cetera. And then they say, okay, so there's a number of solutions here. Let's say they decide, I want to get some medicine for this because I want to feel better. So then they Google cold medicine and then it's like, okay, now there's, you can take Advil, you can take, uh, you know, NyQuil, you can do holistic approaches. At that stage, they're finally at the point where, you know, if you're NyQuil, you could say, hey, this person, or Advil or whatever, you could say, hey, this person has a cold, they have symptoms, they realize it, and they want medication. Now it's just a matter of sort of convincing them why mine is better than the other solutions. So you're the product there. But if you're trying to go to someone who doesn't even, maybe they have symptoms, but they don't even realize they have a problem that they're trying to treat, it's, it's yeah. so far removed from them even listening to you. If you're saying, hey, you know, this lasts longer than the alternatives or whatever, they're like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I like I don't care. So when you're first starting out as a you know as a product as a startup, you don't have a lot of resources. The job, the goal is often to find people who are already pretty far along in that process. They know they have a problem, and they're already comparing solutions to that problem, right? And and then it's just sort of a matter of laying out the logical points often, or whatever case you're making for why they should use yours. If you're trying to get people who are very at the early stage and trying to walk them through this entire sort of says it takes a long time. And so, you know, you start out by trying to reach all of the people who are more or less already ready to use your product or a product to solve their problem. But eventually you run out of those people. There's just not enough of them out there. So you have to go earlier and earlier in the funnel. And that's where I'd say like stuff like branding comes in or even education, right? Like at some point you kind of have to create the market by making people aware. And, you know, that's that gets into changing the mind, but that's also kind of essential for having, you know, a really large scale impact. And, you know, eventually you're just not going to have enough people out there who are already at the late stage. Branding, you know, you can you can do that stuff by, you know, to your example, having influencers, having spokespeople saying, hey, here's a thing that, you know, I'm doing, you should really consider. And maybe someone shares that on a podcast, you know, and then the hundreds of thousands or millions of followers they have are suddenly aware of this issue that they didn't even realize they never thought about before. The community-based stuff is is super essential. So as as a side point, you know, there's a form of treatment called community-based therapy, and in the addiction space, it's really focusing on the the community around someone, because obviously, you know, someone's environment and someone's surrounding has a, a really big impact on their ability to successfully change. And you know, unfortunately, with with drug addiction, often someone goes to into rehab, they come out, they're great, they're sort of in their mind, they're treated, but they go back to the same environment. They go back to the same friends. They go back to the same pressures and influences. And, you know, it just sort of puts them back on the same track. Right. And so unless you, unless you often change your environment, remove people from their environment completely, or, you know, get someone to proactively cut out certain friends or bad influences, or, you know, work with someone's family to help support them as they're going through the, you know, challenges, it's very hard to you know, to, to get it to stick with just, you know, an individual trying to change things themselves. Well, you were talking about the sales funnel. Yeah. 
it's outside the scope of this conversation, but I got to tell yeah, you about- sorry, sorry for that tangent. Oh, no, no. What I'm about to say is outside the scope. What you said is right on. Because the next stage, now that my book is, is, I mean, it's not out yet, but the marketing of it and the sales funnel, although we call it an activation ladder, is like that's, before the book, I couldn't really communicate effectively what I was doing because everyone heard what they expected, not what I was saying. If the book successfully does, and it ha- so far it has with the early readers of the manuscript, creates an identity that people will get what I'm saying, then the marketing is like, I'm, I can't describe how enthusiastic I am to reach the next stage. Of course, I also have to recognize that as far as sales funnels go, the people selling addictive stuff have such an easier time. The product sells itself. Yeah. It's, and you know, that the head of Coca-Cola said a Coke within everyone's, within arm's reach of everyone in the world. Yeah. You just need to know that it's there. And then people, it's like, it nags on your mind. Yeah, as I know from the Doritos and things like that. Then the, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, with recognizing the problems, mm-hmm. it's like pollution is like alcohol where you get the fun and someone else gets cirrhosis. Yeah. And it's so easy to say, to deny, to not look at that. And just, it's so easy. Our, I mean, everything about our culture is going in that direction, is, is saying, we're helping them. You know, we should bring them more cell phones, you know, people who don't have cell phones. But I'm like, yeah, you want to dick them. Yeah. And that's that's part of what makes it so challenging to treat, obviously. You know, I'm, I'm, I often think of the, this, I feel like I lived through this transition in, I don't know, the 90s, you know, where there were all these like recycling PSAs, you know, and then, it it went from being sort of this logical argument. Here's why it you know makes sense. Yeah, you know it's it's not sustainable to the planet. Like you should recycle to an emotional argument, where it's like, well, think about you know future generations, think about the planet. And I think in doing that, it was able to you were able to reach more people. You know, there's a lot more people who are who are going to be able to be swayed by the emotional argument than the logical argument. Obviously, you know, it didn't fully work. And and there's some, I think, unfortunate consequences of taking the authoritative and often like emotional approach. Now it feels like we're we're living through this like authority backlash against science and against governments and, and sort of authority figures because a lot of the things that we were told turned out to like not be true. You know, there's people sort of saying the whole recycling thing was kind of like greenwashing and you you know you probably know more way more about this than i do right recycling most of the things we recycle don't end up actually being recycled you know there's there's some exceptions right like aluminum works well but for a long time it was propped up by like china buying our recycling and they're not really doing that anymore so a lot of the the recycling we do in the u.s now just ends up in landfills anyway and so but people saying hey we were told to recycle and that that would save the planet and you know, now we're realizing it was a, it was kind of a big waste of time. So why should we listen to you? You know, with anything that you say, there's just a lot of people who are really skeptical. That being said, it it's also only really large institutions like governments that can fix some of the problems you're talking about, like uh, like a moral hazard, right? Like if if corporations don't have to pay the costs of the pollution that they're doing, then you know they're they're going to keep doing it because someone else has to do it. So you can create these symptoms. You can create these systems where people are you know, responsible for paying the costs of the things that they do. It's possible to devise those structures. I, I don't really know too much about the nuances of how to how to do that or how to do that well. But 
you know, that's one way, just making people really aware of the tangible costs of the impact that, you know, their behavior is having. You can do that also through, you know, powerful storytelling. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm also a bit of an optimist here. Maybe I'm kind of naive. So to your example on like digital detox, like I think the whole young generation is waking up to the fact that like they're not happy with their relationship with, with technology. You know, rates of depression are at all time highs, rates of anxiety and suicide are at all time highs. So I think it's very likely we start to see backlash and movements that sort of move more towards, you know, trying to cut the stuff out, intrinsically motivated stuff, but it's also pretty deeply ingrained and embedded at that point. So it's it's, it's difficult to do. Let's go back. I couldn't help but follow the the direction that we've gone, but I want to get back to your sure. personal experience sure. that you mentioned some things worked. Could you share one of the Saturdays that went well and and then maybe one that didn't go as well? And I want to point out, yeah, you know, I usually talk about the Spodic method creates a mindset shift followed by continual improvement. And I think people hear me say a mindset shift followed by perfection. And I never, ever say that. It's It's always continual. And so when you say sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. That's the way it is with everyone. And what, that's one of the big things I'm trying to get across on this podcast is why I try to bring in people who have had leadership roles where usually sharing one's vulnerabilities is more effective than sharing the just the triumphs. Yeah. And so I want people to hear that. Yeah. I think I think when it worked well, you know, there was a bit of planning I kind of had to do up front, right? So in the digital detox, there was like, a, okay, well, if I'm, I wanted to think about how I would spend my time. I wanted to, uh, you know, say, oh, well, if I've say 10 hours or eight hours or whatever, where normally I might be my computer or my phone or kind of doing things, but now I'm not going to be, maybe I'll go uh, grab lunch with my sister who lives, you know, a few blocks from me in Brooklyn, or I'll go for a walk in the morning or I'll go, or I'll read a book or something like that. Um, so I, you know, I intentionally planned a lot of those things, but I also told my sister like, Hey, I'm not going to be using my phone. So Let's get specific. We're going to meet at 1230 at this spot. You know, if, if anything comes up, you know, if you don't want to meet me there, either that's going to be, you know, too bad or maybe like message my roommate or something like that. Right. So like a backup plan and then waking up in the morning and, and making sure rather than to your point, like reaching for my phone, although I don't, I don't keep my phone in my bedroom for that reason. I have it up in the living room in the little charging area and like an alarm clock in my room. You know, going in instead, saying, oh, this morning I'm going to stretch. I'm going to go outside for a walk for an hour. I'm going to then sit at the cafe. I'm going to bring my book. I'm going to read. Sort of having this plan of things that that made it easy, right? That made it easy for me to not think to go use my phone. But, you know, it did it did take that upfront work. I think these things can often become defaults. So, like, this is maybe a stupid example, but, like, my default lunch is going to sweet cream. And that's, you know, a block and a half from me. And I, one day I just decided, well, I'm going to make this my default. I'm going to figure out what my favorite thing is. I'm going to order that. I'm going to figure out my variation. I'm going to order that when I'm feeling bored of the favorite thing. But having that be my default allows me to, without even thinking about it, just go and have like a relatively healthy, you know, food where it's tends to be low in carbs and, you know, it's locally sourced and, and yeah not cooked in seed oil, like that sort of stuff. But if, but it makes it more hard, you know, if I'm in a new place where I don't know, like, 
I don't have a sweet green, right? Then it's work. Then I have to look through what are all the different options around me and you know what are, what are the healthiest options. So doing it the first time took work and it would be good to have kind of regular defaults if I had a standing lunch with my sister or you know, a standing sort of morning date with myself where I go to this cafe and I read this book, that sort of thing. You know, it, it was a lot harder when I, you know, when I was traveling because I didn't have those defaults. And, um, you know, even unfortunately doing the research to figure out the defaults involves being on technology, right? Looking up restaurants to go to, it's like, well, how am I going to do that? You know, without my phone, I could go ask people, of course, but you know, that's again, work and a little bit of overhead. It makes it a little bit more exhausting. So those are some of the things that made it easier and, and harder for me. Is what you describe? I mean, you describe what you're doing as work. Earlier, you said you wanted to continue, and I think maybe even do more. Yeah. So, if it's work, why do you want to do more? Or is there something different about work? This work, and also a lot of people would say, why disconnect? I mean, you give access to all the world's art and music and everything, all the knowledge. Disconnecting, you're going back to the Stone Age. Why would you do that? There's, it's not. It's like the work to set up the environment in which the ideal conditions can happen. So it's like maybe a way to think about it would be like, I don't know, I think about Japanese sort of Zen temples or like Zen gardens where you walk through them and it's just gorgeous and, you know, your your system just naturally relaxes. But it doesn't mean it didn't take a lot of time and energy to set it up in just that right way. You might get enjoyment out of doing that. And of course, there's like the Zen monks who, you know, rake the, the, the rocks and that becomes their practice, you know, itself. It's not necessarily for me, like I, I can feel very creative and, and in touch with nature. And, and those are, those are feelings and experiences I like to feel, but they don't, they don't come in my natural environment necessarily. Like I have to either go to nature or I have to set up my environment in such a way that allows for those things. Maybe the setup, maybe that upfront work to get me there is less enjoyable. And so that becomes the barrier. Maybe an approach to that might be we'll figure out how to make the actual work enjoyable as well. Like I uh, going to the gym or even going to the library. Right? When I was in college, it's like when you're in the library, it's a perfect environment to study and there's no distractions, but it, it requires, you know, actually going to the library, right? And setting aside the time to do that. So I do think it's, a, I do think it's probably important to distinguish between the upfront work required to make the changes. I mean, and even in your example, right? Like I went to your place last time and you showed me about, you know, the the sort of solar setup you had, the battery, the, you know, the the kombucha you were making, the food, all that stuff. Like, I don't know if the the research and doing all that stuff was enjoyable for you. Yeah, years in the making. Yeah. And, and maybe it was enjoyable to actually do it for you and also enjoyable to live in that kind of environment. But maybe it was like, you know, challenging at first. and obviously years in the making, right? To, it, it takes time to get there. I'm curious, how would you describe the emotional journey of this whole experience from when from when you left my apartment last time to doing the, the work of setting the situation up, maybe after the work was set up, the experiencing doing the digital detox, maybe when you weren't able to do it as much as you wanted to, how would you describe the emotional journey? It's a good question. The, the stages of grief come to mind, even though maybe that's a little bit <laughs> melodramatic, like volatile, you know, there's high highs and low lows. There's the experience of, of actually getting there, of like going to the walk and feeling like, oh my God, I need, 
why don't I do this more? You know, this is incredible. Going with my sister, like actually being off of my phone and feeling relaxed. And then there's the maybe the upfront sort of denial, right? Of being like, do I really need to do this now? I don't really want to do this. It's like the every morning I sit to meditate and every morning I hate it beforehand. <laughs> I've been meditating now for, I don't know, eight years, 10 years, something like that, every morning, 30 minutes. And yet, it you know it does get easier of course but it's it's still not like there's still a part of me that that wants to procrastinate every single morning and not do it because it feels painful it's like i'm fighting it and then i finally sort of get over it and i'm sit and then i'm like oh this is amazing why didn't you know why was i resisting it also just like going to the gym so there's that aspect which is frustrating and you know it's kind of like part different parts of me fighting and then there's also the aspect of feeling disappointed if it doesn't actually work out. You know, if I do get distracted by something, if the the part of me that is procrastinating wins, feeling bad about myself, you know, feeling like why uh, why I was this is just a failure that that disappointment. It's hard. So those are those are some of the different feelings that came up. Well, with the high highs and the low lows and. I heard a complex, nuanced set of emotions at different times. I'm curious if I'd love to hear over time, especially if you keep this up, yeah. how that journey or that that emotional, I don't think roller coasters are, anyway, that emotional journey, how that changes. If, yeah. if you get past all the work, actually in my case, there's all the work that went into setting things up, but then I'm in a new place and I realize what more I can do. And since mm. I, I knew that the work of setting it up the first time was surprisingly joyful yeah unexpectedly joyful yeah then i always think oh maybe the next thing will be too and so i keep doing the next thing and the next thing and the next thing it can get fun for sure i think i think a lot of times that the work of trying to sort of optimize it is is actually intrinsically enjoyable as well maybe that upfront maybe it's it feels challenging at first because it's like you don't even know where to go people don't like being bad at stuff or uncertainty or <laughs> you know things like that did it affect any relationships with people not really. I mean, you know, I have it maybe it with my sister, for example, saying, "Hey, I'm I'm going to be not on my phone this day, so you know, if we're going to meet up, we're going to have to do the planning." She was totally cool with that. I think most people that I you know would share it with are like, "Oh, that I would love to do something like that." <laughs> so if anything, it's uh, it's aspirational and inspirational for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I could see it affecting people. I don't know. I mean, there's. There's clearly things, there's some things that, you know, I would be forced to miss out on. Uh, if a friend texted me on that day and wanted to meet up and I, you know, wasn't on my phone, I would miss that. Or if, if someone was having a birthday party and, you know, I don't know, I could still go to that, obviously, but but there might be some things where I might say, well, I can't do that because I'm doing digital detox on that day. That day. I can imagine it affecting um, those relationships. I could also imagine it, you know, my, my wife or, or my roommate even, like, People have their own kind of stories where they might say oh, they might get frustrated or roll their eyes or or something like that. I would say, "Are you you're being difficult?" It didn't in this case. I think I'm surrounded with pretty supportive people, but I I could imagine it, you know, being challenging to people around me as well. Yeah, you miss the chance of going to an event and then checking your phone all the time to see if there's a better <laughs> event, so you can leave this event and go to that one. Totally, exactly. Which, yeah, just leads people to just not not actually be present. All that trauma. And one of the things that someone who did the the workshop, she is actually a couple of them are doing these um, 
no garbage dinners where they invite lots of people. And one of them realized, oh, I got to say phones, leave the phones at the door because otherwise once one person breaks it out, it's like, oh yeah. Okay. So this is going to lead to the question I want to close with with you, which might be a long answer. I'm not sure. So what I was going to say was, it's like if you go to a party and someone breaks out the cocaine, everyone's going to be like, oh, give me some coke. Yeah. And so if you break out the cell phone, everyone's going to be like, oh, I want to check my cell phone too. Totally. So in a question I want to ask you is in this experience for you, did, I mean, my model is that people are addicted to these things. How did that feel to you? Did you feel like there was an addiction here? Am I am I pushing it too far or am I right on? How did it feel personally for you? No, I think- What can I learn from this? What can we learn? I think you're pretty much right on. I think obviously there's some nuances, you know, mechanisms of how these things fit in the brain and stuff like that. But, you know, the the challenges are when when I think of addiction, and I talked about this last time, is is does it create does it create distress? Right. I think I think probably most of us are at this point with technology where we realize we don't want to be on our phones and yet we can't stop. You know, we get lonely, we get depressed. You know, people are swiping on dating apps until three in the morning, but, you know, not meeting anyone like things like that. And yet, you know, we can't stop. And that is, you know, that's pretty much kind of textbook definition of, uh, of addiction. And it's also, you know, positively reinforced by our surroundings, to your point. If everyone's on their phone. You know, if someone takes out their phone, it just leads other people. That's like the trigger. And then if you try to not do it, but everyone else around you is doing it, you know, it, it makes it that much harder. You're kind of, you're going against the grain. So yeah, it is. And and what makes it that much more challenging is kind of everyone's addicted in this way, right? It's not like, at least with, with drug use, you know, you, you kind of have these pockets of communities, but you can, you can get out of it. It is possible to, you know, surround yourself with people who don't use drugs and can be sort of positive motivators. Uh, that's more challenging here when you're kind of in the world where, Everyone around you is addicted, but they don't really see it. Yeah, the the treatments are are different, and it you know with drug and alcohol addiction. Well, this is interesting, actually. I feel like, or it used to be the case that most of these movements were about going like quote unquote cold turkey, totally cutting out drug use or alcohol use, because at least AA will say, okay, you're either an addict or you're not. Actually, they'll say. You're always an addict, but like you're either using or you're not using. And that is only going to really appeal to a pretty small group of people. So you see a lot of, of sort of newer movements moving towards moderation. Organizations being like, how, how do we have, how do we encourage healthy, uh, say, alcohol consumption, right? Where it's not cutting out alcohol entirely. I think most people you talk to would say, uh, you know, I would like to drink less, for example, but I don't want to stop drinking entirely, right? And and you might look at that and say, well, that's still your addiction talking. Or you might say, well, maybe just take that at face value. You know, they want to drink less. They would love to just drink one or two glasses of wine a week instead of, you know, five or six. But it's harder to do, right? Because these, you have triggers that are, tend to be kind of all or nothing, black or white, right? You can remove the triggers entirely and make it easier for yourself. But for a lot of people, it's kind of the slippery slope once they drink once, then they want to have a second drink or once they're around a friend that drinks or they're in a bar, then that triggers things. But at the same time with stuff like technology, like, you know, it feels, it just feels really unlikely that we're, you know, we're going to put the, what is it? The big cat back in the box that everyone's going to say together, okay, we're going to stop using computers and phones. Like no emails. 
always going to be here. Calendars are always going to be here. So, you know, we, I don't think we can go full, uh, sort of cold turkey on this one, which makes it that much more challenging. You know, moderation is just more, a more challenging state to reach. So we're not, okay, we're not professional editors of the DSM. Sure. We're not professional. But when you say addiction, are you using it casually or, you know, to the extent, given that we're not psychiatrists or whoever, are the official people to make these definitions? Are you saying, yeah, so it's an addiction casually, or do you mean it like to the extent that you, you know, given these these caveats? I try to use a more clinical definition, and and yeah, you're right. Like I'm not qualified to diagnose it, but the you know the elements that stay always stand out to me about clinical addiction is you know it, it needs to actually cause emotional distress to an individual or the people around them. You know, it needs to have the it needs to be something people think about kind of all the time. So in drug use, they're constantly thinking about drugs, how to get more drugs. That gets in the way of them living a a functional life. You know, people can't hold a job. They can't maintain relationships with friends, loved ones. They can't keep their savings. It really gets in the way of thriving, right? And it, you know, promotes risky behavior, stuff like that, right? So that's classic addiction, which which actually gets to this weird kind of loophole in a way, which is if if someone is using drugs and so you might look at them and say, oh, well, this person's clearly dependent. But if they don't, if it's not creating a problem for them, if they're if they're not experiencing distress, if they're kind of functional, sort of quote unquote addicts, as you know, a lot of people would call them, then really you don't technically qualify as having addiction, at least according to the DSM. And and that's where like that's where the definition of functioning is kind of an interesting one. You know, what what does it mean to even function in society? Right? Like if uh if I'm addicted to my phone, but I'm still able to function in society because what functioning means uh, has changed. Well, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been highly functioning 20 years ago, but our, our standards have changed as well. So, you know, it's not enough to just be physically dependent or even mentally dependent on something to qualify as addiction, which I think is, you know, kind of surprises a lot of people. Yeah, at least according to the DSM. But I think in you know, a lot of people would say, well, if you have trouble stopping using this thing and you can't live without it, then you're addicted. I think that's the more casual definition of addiction. I tend toward more towards like the clinical definition, but I'm kind of able to see both interchangeably. Well, what if the people suffering are far away? I mean, if I fly around in American culture, I'm going to succeed and thrive. Yeah. Meanwhile, According to The Lancet, 9 million people a year die from breathing polluted air. There's Cancer Alley in Louisiana. There's sacrifice zones all over the country. And that's in America. And Or if you live in Arizona, we're drawing down aquifers. And so the individuals are thriving. Everyone that they know is thriving. But the numbers dying, you know, Hitler didn't reach 9 million in a year. You know, the Atlanta slave trade took centuries to reach that number. So if everyone around you is thriving, you're thriving. But people are dying in record numbers. Just the the people suffering. Do, do you have to know them? Do they have to be someone that you meet? Yeah. Well, I think I think if you zoom out, then then we start. Then it can qualify as addiction again, right? If you look at it at the at the sort of the planetary scale or the you know mankind scale, like the Earth is not thriving. You know, to your point, right? The Earth is is in a pretty dire state, right? People are suffering as a society, as as sort of you know, humankind, we're not doing well, and and we recognize sort of collectively that something has to change, 
right? That we, you know, there's all these goals around sustainability and corporations and all these things are starting to do it, but we're we're finding it hard to change, right? And so now it's like, okay, well, as a as a society, as a species, I think you could say, yeah, we're absolutely addicted. And you know, I I don't <laughs> like the DSM is for you know, diagnosing individuals and, in, you know, in a, in a therapeutic and psychiatric context, it's, you know, you can kind of use the terms more broadly as, as, uh, you know, to look at us as a species, but then also how, yeah, how do you change our behavior as a species? So, you know, starts to, to stretch the categories a little better where we have to start to get creative, but yeah, to your point, I mean, that's where, you know, if you just look at it at the individual level, any individual, you know, might say, I'm fine but they're, in, they're clearly having an impact on someone else. So it's only really when you, when you look at things at the system's perspective that you know the language of addiction there, I think, definitely makes sense. I'm gratified to hear that I wasn't too far off or even far off at all. And I, I know that you just started a new position, so I, I don't want to keep you too long. <laughs> I hope that either recorded or not recorded, sorry, everyone, if, if we pick up from here one-on-one without recording it, but I'd love to talk about you know, pick up here and talk about the strategies for growth in the sense of helping increasing numbers of people and communities kick this addiction in the language we've been using and live more sustainably, joyfully, freely. Anything to close with that I didn't cover? No, I just, I mean, just thinking all the listeners, right? I think you know, to your point, people are People are listening because they do care and they're out there and they're trying to get more information and they're trying to, to make change. Um, so I think I think everyone listening is, you know, already on the right track. And, you know, and maybe unfortunately to some extent it's like preaching to the crowd or you know, some people who are already converted, but you know, then thinking about how how you can start to have an impact on other people, you know, yeah. to your point. Like that's that's how this actually becomes a change and maybe sharing it with someone or just having a conversation with someone and sort of trying to understand where they're coming from. So just a lot of appreciation for the people listening to this. Matan Grafell, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.